Thanks for joining the Capital Church podcast channel. For more resources and to learn more about Capital Church, please visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. tell you so I'm I'm Tracy I'm I'm speaking for Pastor Chris this morning we're in our social kingdom series and it's going to be a good Sunday because this is going to be the last Sunday for the rest of fall winter um where you're you're not going to have to hear about football guys like this is the this everything changes starting next week so um I just want to give you a reprieve from hearing about the Dallas Cowboys for it feels like a lifetime it's just a few months but Dear Lord, let's pray for all of us because it's about to be football season. So all the poor football wives out there lose their husbands to fantasy football. And I mean, I like football and women like football too, but I just think we like love it in a healthy way. Like we watch the game and then we let it go, you know, but these fantasy football guys and their teams, we get it. You love the Cowboys. We do too, but they break our hearts. So um, I just want to let you know that just get prepare yourself mentally, emotionally, spiritually for next week because everything changes, right? Did it start? Did preseason start? It started this week. I think it started last night. So, okay. Well, we're ready. I'm, I like football. I just, I love Jesus more. It's not a big deal, but kidding, Pastor Chris, kidding. All right, let's, we better hurry on. Luke chapter 24. Let's get to the Bible. Uh, no, I, we, I do love football, and I love, I love the Boise State Broncos, though. Who likes them? I'm ready for it. When's our, our first game's coming up? We're going to play Florida State. We're going to beat them. That one, I'm excited for that. So let's be praying for it. Let's put our prayers towards Boise State this year, less towards the Cowboys, and maybe it'll work out. Boise State will win well, and maybe God will help Pastor Chris's team. Doesn't, it's, it's all in the good Lord's hands. Okay, Luke chapter 24. I'm already in trouble for my brother right now. Uh, Luke chapter 24. We're going to read um, several verses. Are you ready for it? Can you handle a lot of scripture this morning? Um, Pastor Bob Grove in first service asked me how many snakes I killed to make this suit. I'm not aware. Um, I'm not going to tell you, but I know this. No actual snakes were hurt in the making of this, so don't worry. If you're part of PETA, would you care? If PETA, would they care about snakes? It's, it, don't worry about it, but that made me laugh. So Pastor Bob, he's like, as I walked by, he goes, how many snakes you kill for that? And I was like, I don't know, Pastor Bob. Who loves Pastor Bob Grove? He's great. Uh, Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13, says that very day, two of them, the two of them, meaning there were two disciples, not the original 12 disciples, but these are two that have been following Jesus um, during uh, Jesus's ministry, but now post Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, we have two of them that have been followers of Jesus. We're going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So they're on their way from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew drew near and went with them. Now, uh, he's going to later tell us that one of these followers or disciples is Cleopas, and the other one most likely, we're not totally sure who the other one is, but most scholars uh, tend to believe it's probably Cleopas's wife. So I like this, I like this thought of it's a husband and wife dialogue for, for a while. They're on this walk together. Can you imagine what that talk is about? It's very entertaining, I'm sure, and um, enjoyable. And then all of a sudden, Jesus joins this couple in this walk, Jesus himself, verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So these people are walking, discussing things that are going on in the world, things that are heavy on their heart. They're probably frustrated at each other. They're taking their frustration out on each other, and they're walking on this road, and all of a sudden, Jesus just comes up alongside of them. 
and they are kept from recognizing him. Verse 17, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Basically, in other words, he's like, Jesus, he doesn't know it's Jesus, but he's like, dude, have you been living under a rock? You're the only person who doesn't know. Like, everyone's sad. Are you, like, you, you remember, I do, now here's my football talk. I remember when we lost to um, Nevada years ago when we were going to have our undefeated season. Remember this? It's, it's still hard for me. I remember the next day going to Starbucks, and it was snowing outside, and it was like death had come over the entire valley. I just, no one talked, no one smiled, coffee did nothing. The, the magical snow was like, it was like dust and dirt coming from the air. It was like our whole world had fallen apart. Nothing could make us happy that day. Verse 18, then one of them, or sorry, verse 19, and he said to them, what things, and they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. And how our, and, and, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to, to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since all these things have happened. So they're discouraged. They, they, they believe Jesus was the one. He was the one they had hoped for. They had hoped he would be the one, that they, the long promise that they'd been waiting for. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. And they were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Okay, first of all, pause for a second. So they're, they're, walking, on, they're walking on this journey, and, um, and Jesus is next to them. They can't tell it's Jesus. I, this blows my mind because they had to have heard Jesus talk and being in one of the crowds and listening to Jesus preach. They didn't recognize his voice. Like, they're having a conversation. Couldn't recognize Jesus' voice, couldn't see him, did not understand who was walking beside them. Then they had heard that Mary and the women had gone to the tomb and saw angels, like, like supernatural beings, told them that Jesus was not there, and in fact, he was alive, and this has been told to them. And then verse 25, or we, uh, verse 24, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, it just as the women had said, more proof, but him they did not see. Isn't this fascinating? They have so much proof already, all the proof they need to believe that Jesus has been resurrected and that Jesus has come to save the world, and yet they are distraught, and they are discouraged, and they do not believe. Verse 25, and he said to them, oh, you foolish ones, this is Jesus, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wait, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, Jesus reminded them of scripture he told them stories about him. He referenced the Torah. He referenced the prophets that all were pointing to him. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. Now keep in mind, this journey was probably two plus hours. They're probably walking with Jesus for around two hours. This is a long walk. They're walking along this journey, and then they draw near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. I love this. Jesus is like, have you ever been there that you went to a movie, and then you want to go to dinner afterwards, but you don't really want to say you want to go to dinner, so you act like you're leaving, but you kind of linger, like, like hope they invite you, you know? Have you ever been there? No? No one? You just assume they're going to invite you? Okay. You have better friends than me. So he acted as if he was going to go further, but instead, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. 
when he, was a ta- when, when he was at a table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Now all of a sudden, everything that, just ma- that happened for the two hours made sense. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found that the 11 uh, and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened, then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread, how he was known to them in the breaking of bread, how they recognized him in the breaking of bread, how they saw their Jesus in the breaking of bread. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence in this place already. Lord, we're just, we're so grateful that we have such a great community to be a part of and a family. Lord, that we get to uh, come together each and every week. Lord, you, you so perfectly place each and every one of us a part of this great community. Lord, that we could grow in our understanding of you. And Lord, I pray today that we would just get another greater glimpse of just who you are and what you've done. Open our eyes to see you a little more clearly today, Jesus. Give us a greater perspective of what you've come to do in and through our lives. And we're just so grateful to be reminded this morning of what a good God we serve. So I pray as we, as we continue on, Lord, help us to focus on you and what you want to speak to each and every one of us about today. We love you, Jesus, and we're thankful for all that you're doing in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I, I love this portion of scripture because it, it's just fascinating to me um, how you could be around someone and, and miss the obvious. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a situation where, uh, you, you, and I think it's like maybe the human condition, I think we all can do this, you have that uncanny ability to like miss the obvious. Like have you ever, have you ever been that person that's on your phone trying to find your phone? Have you ever done that? Like you're like, where's my phone? I can't find it. And the person on the other end's like, hi, Captain Obvious, you're talking on it right now. Like, you're, you're, it must be in your hand. And you're like, oh my gosh, so embarrassing. Or you like are in a rush to get outside, you're late for work and you got all this stuff, you're carrying your bag, your coffee, you got like things under your arm and you're like, where are my keys? And they're like in your hand and you've been looking for 20 minutes, you know? And they were exactly where they should be, you know? Like, have you ever had these moments where you just miss the obvious thing? Uh, the worst for me is... Um, people out of context. Like, I, it, it's really hard for me to, you know, you grew up in church, we have, like, think about all the people that we see on a Sunday, and we know, and, and then, you know, you go to your gym, and you go to your dry cleaner, you go to your coffee place, you go to your work, you go to all these different places, and have you ever been in that situation where you run into them at the fair, because it's coming up, are you excited? Um, you run into them at the fair, and you're like, wait, wait, like, what part of my life are they from? Have you ever been there? And you're like, I know them, and then you feel like the worst human of all time, and if they're from church, you feel like the worst pastor who's ever pastored because you're like, I think, I don't really know. I mean, I'm pretty sure it is the worst feeling in the world to like misplace or not recognize or not know someone. The worst though, I think the very worst is when you grow up in church, especially as the pastor's kid and everybody knows your name and you struggle to know theirs. Now I'm going to be, I'm going to be really honest here from the pulpit and I need to publicly apologize and repent. I don't know everyone's name and my greatest desire would be that I do, but I'm terrible with names. Like my dad has, has the best 
gift in all of the world to remember names. He will meet someone one time and like 10 years later, he'll be like, Sam, good to see you. And Sam just starts crying, you know? He didn't even need a prophetic word. He just wanted someone to know his name, you know? And he's like, I'll be at church next week, pastor. You know, it's like, and you know, Chris and I are sitting there going, I've never seen him in my life. No, I'm just kidding. Pastor Chris is better than me. But I just struggle to remember names. So I remember growing up, Pastor Chris, our sister Rochelle and I um, were uh, obviously part of this church from the beginning. And back in the day, we don't do this anymore. Maybe we should bring it back. Actually, no. But back in the day, we used to do the first Sunday of every month, we did Name Tag Sunday. Name Tag Sunday. And uh, we would have a table set up in the lobby, especially when we were downtown at 14th and Bannock, our downtown, uh, where we used to be back in the day. Uh, we had this, this little lobby and we had this table set up. And I don't know whose idea this was. But I think maybe it was just to keep us out of trouble. But they thought, let's put the three wild kids. Let's put Chris, Michelle, and Tracy at the Name Tag Sunday booth. And let's let them write names on people's name tags. Well, like, just set the name tags and markers down, and the Sharpies down, and let people fill out their own name. No, not at Capital Church. We needed to have someone sitting there. And so let's put the three wild kids right there and smack dab in the very front of the lobby. As soon as you walk in, the first spaces you see were arts. So we're sitting there. I don't even know if I could spell. So why they have me at Name Tag Sunday booth, I don't know. But Chris, Rochelle, and I would sit there and, you know, a lot of people come in. It's our friends and Chris is writing, you know, like Shane, you know, and like writing funny things or our friends and their parents. And we like, for the most part, we were like pretty good at knowing people's names. But every once in a while, we would straight panic because someone would walk through those doors and we should know their name because they've been a part of the church for a good long time, and they certainly know our names. I mean, it's like these people got, like, saved in our church, water baptized, they get married, we're at their, we've been at their house, like, but something comes over you. Have you ever had this? And you straight panic. And it's not because you don't know them, it's just like all of a sudden you go blank. And you cannot for the life, if you had to save your life based on knowing their name, I would have been dead a long time ago because I could not remember the name. So I'm sitting there, and I see someone come in, and there's this one lady, and she was such a gregarious, happy, funny, like very entertaining lady. I'm like, I mean, she's memorable. How can I not remember her name? So I just immediately, I'm the youngest, so I'm out. I'm like, let those two deal with it. So I just start looking the other way and doodling on the hello my name is. I'm pretending like I'm writing someone else's name tag. Rochelle just, I think, shuts down. Like she just like acts like mute and looks straight ahead. And so it is left to the oldest, as it should be. So here is our pastor, my big brother, at the front of the table, having to endure what no one ever wants to endure, which is trying to remember this sweet lady's name, who certainly knows ours, and will make sure we know her name. So we're sitting there, and I'm thinking, what is he going to do? Like, Pastor Chris is a redhead, so you know he's bright red all over. His, his skin color is the same color as his, as his hair at this point. He's sweating. Like, he's like, I mean, he, he, I think he keeps looking for help down the, the, down the table, and Rochelle and I will not make eye contact. We are, like, in another place. And all of a sudden, my genius brother, I thought this was the smartest thing I'd ever heard of. I never even knew you could even think of something so good. I'm like, what is he going to do? So he sits there and he's like, oh, good to see you. Oh, yeah, here's a name tag. You want to sign it? No, you go ahead. Okay. And then he goes, oh, okay, how do you spell it? Because that's like the genius way, right? It's like, just throw in the how do you spell. It works half the time. In this instance, not so much. 
So he asks, oh, how do you spell it? And she looks at him with a little cheesy smile, and she goes, J-A-N. And my brother goes, oh, yeah, I mean, I just didn't know if it was like a G or if there's an E or two N's, you know, there's no getting out of this. Uh, oh, man, this is, but I learned, I learned this great trick from my brother, which didn't work. Ye like a few years ago, uh, we were doing, after I, my book had come out, we were doing this book signing in the lobby. And, um, and I was, I already knew I'd prepare myself because I'm traumatized from Name Tag Sunday. So I'm like, they're going to want me to write their names on this, and I'm not going to know them. So we had, we had recruited one of our interns. This was their old, I was like, give me an intern. I don't care which one. Give me a good intern. Give me the best one we got. I was like, they gave me an intern. I go, your job, this is your only job. I go, your job is to take their book and just say, hi, what's your name? And then you bring the book to the table, and you go, hey, like, Charlie, you know, so excited for you to sign his book. I'm like, genius plan, right? Like, I learned from Name Tag Sunday. Like, you don't put yourself in an awkward position. So I'm sitting there signing books, and this, this, this system's been working great. It's flawless at this point. I didn't know most of the people's names, but just in case I panic or I get confused. And so all of a sudden, we're towards the end of the book signing, and I don't know why anyone wants me to send their book anyway. It feels awkward. But I'm sitting there signing books, and this lady comes up, and, and the intern goes, oh, hi. Can I take your name? What's your name? <laughs> and she looks at me, and she looks at him, and she goes, she knows my name. <laughs> And I was like, oh, Lord. I tried Chris Trick, also didn't work great. End of story. God bless you. I hope she's still in our church. I don't know. No. But it's funny how you can miss such an obvious thing. Here's these disciples, Cleopas, and most likely his wife, scholars will tell us. They're walking on this two-hour journey. Jesus comes alongside of them, and somehow they can't recognize or see Jesus. And when I read this, I think, why? They didn't recognize his voice. They didn't, they didn't understand his, his phraseology. I mean, you, you spend enough time with someone, you're going to recognize them. And so here are these two following Jesus and had hoped that Jesus was the one that they were waiting for to redeem Israel. And yet they're so discouraged, they're down, they're frustrated, and they couldn't see Jesus. And the scripture gives us, Luke, Luke's gospel gives us a little bit of hint why they couldn't see him or recognize him. In verse 16, it says they were kept from recognizing Jesus. They were kept from it. And that, 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 that like makes me, at least for me, I, wanna, I don't think I'm a Bible scholar. I'd love to be a Bible scholar. But for me, that gets my like, juices flowing. I get excited when I'm like, oh, okay. So why were they kept from recognizing Jesus? Well, then if you keep reading, verse 25 gives us another hint as to why they were kept. Jesus looks at them and he says to you, oh, you foolish ones. You foolish, slow to heart in understanding or remembering the scriptures or what the prophets said. So they were foolish and slow to heart. Now, this foolish word, if you, if you know much about the Bible, the word fool was actually pretty derogatory. If you called someone a fool, it'd be like a derogatory statement. Like, uh, I mean, our best uh, translation would be, you know, we could say lots of things, but it'd be like calling someone, you know, you're so stupid, you're such an idiot, you're the worst, you know? Like, we, we wouldn't, you wouldn't encourage your children to say that. You'd probably discipline if they did, if they're walking around and they saw someone, they'd like, you idiot. You'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, you know? Jesus is not using foolish in the type of derogatory way that you would, you would call and point finger and call someone a fool. He's saying it, he's using it in a different way. When he says you are foolish, he is saying you are without understanding or you are missing information. You are unwise. You are missing some information. So Jesus is walking with them and he's just talking with them, sharing stuff about himself. Remember, he's literally telling them, 
stories about himself for two hours. And he says, you, you foolish ones, you, you ones without understanding, without all the information, they didn't understand and they acted like it. Have you ever been in that situation? where you didn't understand something and you certainly acted like it. That's embarrassing, isn't it? When you want to act like you know, and so you pretend to like be in a conversation, you know, there's like intelligent people and they're like having this, or it's like a political debate and you act like you've been actually watching the news or like you know, and so you like interject and you say something and you are like, all you have to do is look at everyone's faces and be like, okay, I don't know, clearly. I don't know what you're talking about. Like we've all been there before. These are the, uh, Cleopas and his wife are like those, they are those who act like they don't know because they don't know. So they can't even see Jesus, they can't recognize him. And so there's this outward inability for them to recognize Jesus because it's mirroring their inward unbelief of the story of God. Now our pastor talked to us last week about getting a bigger story. What big stories will trump little stories. The problem is we have this inverted view of stories. We tend to elevate our story and we, we minimize Jesus' story and the story of God. So then we're so frustrated when Jesus doesn't come into our world the way we want him to, but it's because our story has somehow been magnified and the story of God is this big. And so here we have in the text, it's this outward inability. They can't even, they can't, they're not going to be able to recognize him because they don't even know the story and they don't know who Jesus is and they're frustrated. So their outward disbelief and misunderstanding is, is mirroring their unbelief in Jesus. You can't see Jesus if you don't believe that he came the way he came. And T. Wright says this, one of the greatest scholars says these two in this story are like pretty much everyone in the ancient world at the time. They had been reading the scriptures, he says, from the wrong end of the telescope. They'd been reading scripture up until this point. They'd been reading it. They, they loved the Torah. They loved the prophets. They loved hearing about this redeemer who was going to come and set everything to right. They believed in it, but they were reading it through the wrong end of a telescope. See, they believed that the long story of how God would redeem Israel would come from suffering, not through suffering. They wanted God to come. They wanted Jesus to come and just eliminate it. And he'd be like the Captain America of the day. And he'd come in just like victorious over everyone. They didn't see Jesus coming through suffering. So Jesus himself, as he's on his walk, this walkabout with these two, he says, did not Christ have to come through suffering? Didn't it have to come through suffering? And he's explaining this to them. And in this long walk, they couldn't see what Jesus was trying to tell me, he keeps, he just spends this, he's so patient. Isn't that what's so good about Jesus? He's so patient with them, just keeps telling them scripture about himself. Like, how fun would that be? Like, and he's just kind of sitting there like, did they catch it yet? Or like, did, they didn't quite catch that reference. Remember like Isaiah, like, like the stripes and stuff, the blood, like you're not catching any of this. Like you're not seeing this. So Jesus keeps doing it. Well, Jesus knows something they don't know. The readers get to know. But those in the story don't know yet, which is this, that Jesus knows his ascension is drawing near. He's soon going to go to be with his father. And this is the last generation of human history that will have seen the bodily presence and proof of Jesus. From this point on, this is the last generation that will have seen his body, that will have seen the presence of him. So he knows this to be true. We got to get him ready to believe in scripture. They're going to have to have faith in what was said about me because they're not going to see me. So Jesus has this long walk going, okay, they, they need to, they need to, they, they got to get some faith. 
They got to trust in what has been said and spoken over me because they're not going to see me. And don't, come on, let's be honest. We like to see things before we believe it. Like, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. Like we say that and we're like, that's wrong. We don't really believe that, but we do. That is our, in, our outward inability to, to really trust God is because it's our inward unbelief that, that Jesus is there be, even when we can't see him. We sing about it, we talk about it, we believe it, we preach it, that Jesus is working behind the scenes. But ultimately, we don't actually believe that because we want to see what he's doing. And then our faith is going to line up with it. And Jesus is saying, hey, I'm about to leave, and you're the last ones that are going to see me. Like, you could touch me. You want to touch me? Like, you want to high five? You want to shake my hand? Like, it's real. But soon, people won't have that. And instead, they're going to have to rely on the scripture. They're going to have to rely on the story that has been said of me. The story from Genesis all the way through. The story that points to what I've come to do. They're going to have to believe the story. And so perhaps that's what Luke is trying to work so patiently with this text is to try to point people and to show us that in this text, we can only really know Jesus and recognize him if we see him through the story. Outside of that, we can't really see him or know him. If we don't know what Jesus has come to do and why he came to do it, then why is it powerful what he did? Have you ever thought of that? Like, why is the cross so powerful? I mean, growing up and they talk about blood and stuff, and I'd be like, why are we talking about blood in church? It seems wildly inappropriate, you know? Well, because, yeah, it has a lot of connotation. Read the Old Testament. Why did it have to be blood? Why, why did Jesus do this? Well, it was the atonement. It, it was a washing. It was a cleansing. It was a cutting off of the curse that was before. But you have to know the story to understand the power of Jesus. Otherwise, Jesus is just some idea and some good prophet and something you can catch on a TED Talk or any sort of YouTube expression. He's just as good as that to you then. But there is power in Jesus that is not in any other form. Why? Because of the story. But you got to know it. And so when these things are happening here in this text, we, we have to understand Jesus himself was seen as the one to whom the scripture is pointing. That's what we see. Luke is trying to remind us, the reader, but certainly Jesus is trying to remind these two followers that he is the one that all of Scripture has pointed to. Not just isolated texts, not just parts, but all of it. And so here is where it gets good. This is the part that I get. When you preach, there's like a certain part that you can't wait to get to. This is the part. When they finally recognize Jesus. They finally recognize him. It's late in the story. It took a long time, like two hours worth of talking and like trying to convince. And then all of a sudden, we see uh, there's a shift and their, their eyes are open and they're able to see Jesus. Well, I don't know if you remember, but the very first meal in the biblical story is far before, long before the New Testament. It's way back in the first book in, in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter three, starting in verse six, we, we see the first meal, the first time that there's eating that we're, that we're, that we're aware of. The first meal is in chapter 3, verse 6. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So here's the first meal. Then Luke echoes this story 
But now in new creation, he gives us the new first or the first meal of the new creation, which is Jesus. Remember, he was lingering as they get into the city. They're lingering like, what what are you guys going to do tonight? But come in, let us have a meal. Jesus comes in, he breaks the bread, he blesses it, passes it around, and they eat. And what happens the moment they eat? Their eyes were opened. And they recognize Jesus. Why is that powerful? Because it is Jesus saying, I broke the curse from the first meal. And now we're in the first meal of new creation. And all the curse of sin and death has been broken and eliminated through my body, my burial, and my resurrection. But you got to know the story. Because Genesis would be like, what? Who cares? And Luke would be like, awesome. He walked for two hours and then had like communion. What's the big deal? The big deal is that the story of Jesus is the story of your life. But if you don't know it, you can't see it. Jesus goes from the first meal to the first meal in creation. And in one moment, he breaks bread. Their eyes are open and they see him. And they're like, what? How? And this is what they're thinking. They go, how did we not see him? We walked with him for two hours. How did we not see it? How did we not know? How did we not recognize our Savior, the one who came? And so now they're almost distraught at themselves, thinking, wow, we just, can you imagine, you realize it? You're like, all the questions I would have asked, you know? All the insight I could have gotten if I would have known it was Jesus, if I would have known I just spent two hours walking with my Savior. Jesus showed them that in him and through him and through his story, He has broken what was set over us and freed us so that we could live the way that God has called us to live. Eating meals together was what broke it open. See, eating meals in in the ancient world was not like just eating food. Like you didn't, if if you welcomed someone in your home or you sat with someone and ate, it was as if you were saying, oh yeah, that person who's sitting at the same table as me, we're friends. We're doing life together. I got you. You got me. We, let's support each other. It was not just like a meal, you know, like we just go to Chick-fil-A really quick and we eat. We're like, hey, have a good week. No, having a meal together meant we're doing life together. Uh, uh, you're my friend. You're with me, which is why it was always so scandalous that Jesus would sit and eat with who? Sinners. Because Jesus was saying, those sinners are my friends. I'm, I'm for them. I support them. I got their back. I, 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 I condone not their lifestyle, but I condone them as people, and I want them to feel loved and welcomed and that they belong. So Jesus sits with people to establish relationship and friendship and community. And here we see that you have to have both in order to see Jesus, both word and meal. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, Pastor Chris preached about it last week. He says, and the early church, remember, the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. They devoted themselves to this word and meal, scripture and sacrament. See, why weren't the people on that road, why wasn't Cleopas and his wife's eyes open just through the word? You would think that would be enough, right? Well, the word is powerful and they needed to hear the story, but it wasn't the word alone that could open their eyes. Because they needed to understand and they had to have relationship with Jesus and communion and have a meal and friendship to open their eyes to see the word. But let me tell you something, that meal would not have been that powerful if they wouldn't have heard the scriptures. What would the meal have mattered 
if they hadn't have understood what the meal was for. You have to have the word in the meal. Can you imagine what, uh, what Thanksgiving would be like if you didn't have any power in it, if it was just like you're just coming in to, um, you know, there's, no, there's no context, there's no scripture behind it, there's no word in your family and your dynamics, you end up just having like a very dysfunctional Thanksgiving dinner. That's what it's like to remove scripture from the sacraments that God has given us. If you take scripture out and you're just going to have a meal with someone, it's like a dysfunctional meal. Like you, you leave today and you go eat with someone and you just, you know, you could have a nice lunch but unless you have the word and you're, you're, the, the, the spirit of Jesus is in you, it's just, a, it's, just a, it's just eating. But when you mix the word with the meal, it becomes powerful. Now, if you took a meal away from, from uh, the word and you just live by, you just want to live by uh, the word instead of community or fellowship or people, then all of a sudden your, your faith becomes very intellectual and just an intellectual exercise and can sometimes get really religious and it's all about you just getting knowledge and information and yet without any relationship or community or accountability or connection or belonging. You can't have, and Jesus didn't intend for you to separate meal and word. He always meant those to be jointly joined tightly together. Why? Because Jesus knows that we need to know the story and then we need to enter the story. You can know the story by reading it, but you're not a part of it until you're having a meal, until you're breaking bread, until you're doing community, until you're in relationship with Jesus and, and with others and the community that God has built. Like Jesus wants a meal and the word together. They're not so powerful on their own, but it's the, it's the ingredients together, it's the recipe that all of a sudden then you can see Jesus and you can recognize him and, and, and all this confusion in your life and your world all of a sudden gets into focus and you can see Jesus clearly and you understand what he's coming to do and it's as if the telescope gets turned around for you and you begin to see scripture and you begin to see the story of Jesus. And you begin to see your life within his story in the right, proper perspective. See, people didn't want Jesus to come suffering. And I think for many people here, I think one of the greatest struggles for you to really enter into this meal and word relationship with Jesus is that you struggle to believe that Jesus could allow your suffering. What kind of Jesus is that? What kind of God allows me to go through this and go through that and experience that and, and, and struggle through this? And man, that doesn't seem like a savior. That doesn't seem like a Messiah. That doesn't seem like a, someone who's come to rescue the world. And Jesus, he walks with these people. And they said he, he was the one we hoped. But he clearly isn't because there was suffering. And Jesus goes and gives them the scripture over and over and over again. Then he sits down with them and has a meal. And all of a sudden their eyes are opened. And you know what they recognize? That Jesus is still Lord and Savior through suffering. He didn't stop reigning as king when you hurt and when you suffered and when you've experienced rejection and brokenness. If anything else, you are closer to Jesus you are more intimate with your Savior when you have suffered and you are broken. But you know what we want? We want a life that's opposite of that. It's like, Jesus, just save me from it. Don't save me through it. 
Just take all the pain away, take all the problems away, give me a perfect life. Because that's when I know you're the king. And Jesus says, you won't ever see me then. You won't know me. You won't recognize me. You will spend all your life walking in a road, and I'm right next to you talking to you the whole time. You come to church every week. You're in a Bible study. You, like, get on your U version. You love to listen to worship music, but you still won't see me until you recognize and embrace that the word and the meal together will give you the right lens of who Jesus is in the story. And he has a big, beautiful, redemptive story and you get to be a part of it, but you gotta surrender your story to his story. And then all of a sudden you will see through suffering, through brokenness, through pain, that he is and forever and always will be the king. Whoo, whoo, he's the king. He never stopped being the king of your heart. We never want to diminish the pain you might feel, but come on. He went to a cross. You don't think he recognizes your pain? You don't think he empathizes with you? You don't think he knew you would go through that so that he did it before you? Jesus, we need the right picture of our Savior. And when we turn that telescope around, whoo, all of a sudden, your story gets smaller and his gets bigger. And your little story gets swallowed up in his big story. And then you give the rest of your life to following where he's going and do what he's doing and speak like he speaks and love like he loves. And you don't get tripped up anymore in the fear, in the shame, in the concerns of your heart. You offer them to Jesus, the King who rules over everything. And you find yourself living in a big, beautiful, redemptive story. Woo. Jesus. But the word and the meal have to be together. I can't give my life to just studying the word and not have church. I can't just go sit at home and watch a podcast of a service and think I'm doing it. Never come in community. I'm sorry, we're going to get personal, is it okay? I can't, I can't skip out on every region dinner, show up to church once a month and think I'm making it. I can't just go to all the events and never read my Bible. I can't come, you know, miss worship because it's too much for me, but I'll make it for the word and think we're good or vice versa. Why did Jesus say you need both? Because he knows what you need. You need the word and you need fellowship. You need the scripture and you need community. You need church and you need scripture. You need to break bread, you need to make friends, and you need to be a friend. You need to give yourself to the word, and you need to go have lunch with people. They're not isolated. One will not help you see Jesus, but both will put him in right perspective and focus. Jesus wants you to recognize him today. He wants you to see him. He wants you to see him through the pain and the suffering that you may have experienced that I think has kept a lot of you for so long from truly seeing your Savior. 
And we might be like Luke chapter 24, where it's as if he's kept us from recognizing him until we take the risk, as our pastor said last week, the risk to join community, the risk to have a meal, the risk to be friends and vulnerable. But we're okay with having one or the other. We don't mind we don't mind so much having the history and the story of Jesus insofar as we don't have to have the intimacy and vulnerability of friendship. Or vice versa. We, we don't mind community involvement and helping Easter egg hunt or, you know, showing up every once in a while on a Sunday. But insofar as I don't have to read my Bible, you know, because it's hard. Well, thank God they have it on Audible if you don't like to read. But what I love about Capital Church is that we are committed to helping you have the tools to know the word and to have a meal with Jesus. We want to make space, and that's why we do small groups. Some of you think, why do we do so many things? It's because it's word and meal. Why do we come and hear the preaching of the word on Sundays? Why do we like small groups? Why do we encourage you to read your Bible? Why do we do region parties? Why do we, why do, we do these events? Why do we encourage you to go out with people? Because it's the, it's the Bible. It's the Jesus way when you have the word and a meal together, you're able to see Jesus. And I want us to see Jesus because when we see him, all that stuff that has been tormenting you, the fear, the pain, the past, those things that you spend more time thinking about, when you take the word and meal and you focus on Jesus all of a sudden, it's weird, it's crazy, it's kind of miraculous. All of a sudden, you see Jesus bigger than those things. We say it all the time. It's, you feel like a broken record as a preacher. You're like, give your circumstances to Jesus. He's bigger. But you had to keep saying it until someone actually believes it. I know he didn't come and rescue you from your suffering, but he is rescuing you through it. Don't let the pain or the brokenness of your heart keep you from seeing Jesus. Jesus is with you and for you. He is not against you. He went to the cross for you so that in your brokenness right now, he can make you whole. Would you stand with me?